Hello, I'm Felix, and welcome to You Gotta Hack That, the podcast all about the security behind the Internet of Things. In this episode, I'm going to talk to you about wearable tech. So, wearable tech covers absolutely enormous ranges of devices. Uh, there's there's just so many, I'm going to miss some in this list. But as a short version, we've got smartwatches, we've got cuddle wristbands, we've got health monitors like ECG and uh, O2 sat monitors, that kind of thing. We've also got fitness trackers, we've got AR and XR glasses, uh, we've got uh, running shoes, we've got smart underwear, we've got smart rings, um, and we've got clothing as well, like Levi's and uh, the sportswear that you get for sports teams uh, that track what the the players are doing on on a on a pitch. There is absolutely loads of different variations here, and they're all designed for a particular market, particular type of person, whatever they're interested in doing, something along those lines. It's basically been the biggest area for uh, for IoT from a consumer's point of view that's really taken off, I suppose. Uh, there's just such a big variety of items here. So how are these things connected? Well, the vast majority are something called Bluetooth low energy. And that's been one of the key reasons why these bits of tech have become so prevalent. And that's because the BLE or Bluetooth low energy is something that is in pretty much all new smartphones. And this allows devices that have, uh, you know, small batteries or something similar to be able to connect and communicate with those devices and therefore be connected to the internet without the overhead of more uh, computationally expensive and, and resource intensive Bluetooth technologies or other RF tech for that matter. So that's what happens is the, the device connects over Bluetooth or probably Bluetooth low energy, a BLE, and then that connects to your smartphone or a similar device, and then it gets connected to the cloud. And the cloud is inevitably like a web app and uh, an app on your smartphone, and, and that's how you manage it. There'll be more tech in the background there. There's bound to be like web applications that the, the developers can access and that kind of stuff, but that's not the stuff consumers see. So BLE is pretty ubiquitous. It's basically everywhere now, and, and that's uh, great from a, a tech point of view and an enabling point of view. Um, BLE uses like handles. They're sort of addresses, but it's essentially like I know that I need to connect to that device on this address and therefore be able to send or ask for data that is supposed to go or be found there. And that's uh, that's about as complex as the protocol is from a like a this is how it works point of view there's lots of finer detail but that's kind of the headlines BLE security is based upon cryptography and essentially if you are on the inside of that crypto there is often like no further access controls required the application doesn't necessarily do any user authentication or anything beyond that because it's considered that if you're paired with the phone uh, which is what being inside the crypto really means, then you probably have the access controls you're supposed to have. It's a very much a, like a one-to-one -one ratio. It's not like you share a piece of smart tech with lots of people and therefore you have to have the correct protocols or you know profiles and that kind of thing in place. It just kind of works. And, and, and that's really good, I suppose, from a, like a usability point of view on the most part. But at the same time, that does lead to some interesting circumstances where the Bluetooth crypto falls down. 
So let's have a, a bit of a deeper dive into BLE crypto. Uh, the cryptography uses two security modes. Uh, and essentially, the one that most people will uh, hope is in place is, is mode one, which is the encrypted version of all of the communications, whereas mode two is, is just plain text data, but has been digitally signed. You can also do like a mixed version of this, which is a bit of both. Um, and the application then needs to know how to talk and the, the stack in the, the device and the smartphone, say, need to know how to do that communication. And to be honest with you, I think that's fairly rare. It's most likely to be mode one because everyone likes a bit of encryption so in mode two first of all we've got two levels and this is the thing with uh, bluetooth is that there's actually multiple levels in each of those modes and then there's some more complexity still which we'll get onto in a moment in mode two because it's the most simple it's the signed only they've got two levels and this is essentially unauthenticated but signed communication and then you've got authenticated with signatures as well. So it's kind of both signed, but one's with authentication and one is without. Now, in this instance, authentication is, is kind of a bit of a, a nebulous thing, really, because usually what you think of is signed data makes it authenticated. But as the two devices don't necessarily know what's on the other side of the communication channel, they don't recognize the device, they don't know it, then they can't authenticate that information. But when you've got paired devices that are doing level, uh, sorry, mode to level two, then you can do authenticated plain text comms, but with signatures. So mode one is probably more common, and there's four different levels here in the later versions of BLE. Um, so in traditional classic or legacy Bluetooth, you have kind of three layers, uh, levels rather. And so level one is no signatures, no crypto, and that's essentially unpaired. You can technically talk over that, but it's pretty rare. Most of the time, it's just the first step in getting paired. Level two, mode one, is no authentication, but crypto cryptographically uh, but cryptographically protected um, and then mode one level three is authenticated with crypto and that means essentially it's paired and there has been some key exchange occur uh, and therefore you've got this position where you uh, recognize each other and, and are able to authenticate that in the future but the protection around the whole communication is in place in the form of cryptography and then the fourth level for mode one is where the LE secure communications is in place. And that's a specific name for a type of pairing process which uses authentication and crypto. So like signatures and uh, proper crypto as well. So mode one is the most common and all of the connections start at level one and upgrade for, for mode one. At mode one, level three, you can do pairing, and that means you um, you essentially agree. You don't do key exchange in the traditional format. You do uh, a process which agrees a short-term key or an STK, and that typically means, particularly for the legacy stuff, you enter a four-digit code on one side of the transaction, and therefore, between you, you've kind of gone, well, this device is going to be with... Um, four-digit code 1234 and the other side is also 1234 but you only have to tell one side of the transaction that that is the case and, and away you go um 
basically this is not that great at protecting the key exchange process because it's not a technically it's not actually a, an exchange it's uh it's sort of it's observable and that means that you can as an attacker if you're listening to this you can derive some of those keys in the process of, of doing this as well um what this results in though is aes128 cryptography um and uh, and that's good actually aes128 is considered good enough for you know most applications these days it's starting to feel a little bit dated most people are, are talking about pushing to the next thing and, and it's certainly not going to be quantum resistant but we're not there yet we don't have to worry about that right now um but what this is is like it's good cryptography but it's not uh cryptographically enabled key exchanges so it's not that kind of high level really good key exchange it's, it's that kind of noddy not quite good enough but probably works and and you know what we don't see much of that legacy bluetooth stuff around anymore so that's where mode one level four comes in and that's the the low energy specific bits and, and this establishes the strongest form of bluetooth crypto based authentication uh, and it does that by requiring elliptic curve diffie hellman key exchanges and then there's an optional process to prove that the key exchange had been completed without interference without a man in the middle of attack and, and so on so LE Secure Connect has several methods within that are dependent on the capabilities of the device on both sides of that communications process. Um, and, and that's quite interesting because it makes it incredibly flexible because there's a few different ways of doing the same thing. Um, there's basically there's four headlines. We've got Just Works, which is the least good, but essentially you say do some key exchange and get on with it. And it still ends up in a really good uh, key exchange if there has not been a man in the middle attack or you know some other attack going on at the time um so you could uh, i don't know drive off to a big forest and do your your pairing there and therefore you'd probably be fairly confident that nobody got in the way of that process you could just stick in a faraday cage as well but you know less exciting that way um, and then there's three more modes that do have man in the middle protection so you've got pass key display and you can say well actually both devices show me that they've got the same six digit pin number and therefore i know that uh, they have been connected together correctly uh, and that's actually pretty good it sounds really simplistic on the surface but with the way that diffie hellman works that means that both sides have managed to establish that that key is correct that that six digit number and and that means it cannot have been interfered with um, out-of-band communication or OOB, um, this is where you use a different mechanism to transfer uh, the cryptographic material. So, for instance, you could do that over NFC or you could uh, do... Um, like take a picture of a QR code or something along those lines and, and be able to get the same net effect by having an out-of-band way of doing it. Some people consider out-of-band to be the most uh, secure version of this, but actually I personally think that they're just a different way of achieving the same goal and uh, uh, and it depends on exactly what your threat actor is as to which one of these is most appropriate. And then finally, we've got the most common version of this, which is numeric comparison, which is that six-digit code 
And what you have to do is you have to actively say, yes, that is the same key on both devices. Uh, and that one is very similar to the passkey display, uh, but it's, it's based on the kind of yes, no process um, rather than just uh, um, show it on screen. And then if it's been interfered with, you know, is this way you actually have to actively say, yes, that's correct. And it has not been interfered with. Um, there is a bit of confusion online about whether all three of those last ones provide man-in-the-middle protection, but the cryptographic process should provide that man-in-the-middle protection, definitely because of the way Diffie-Hellman works. The one edge case here is that things like the numeric, uh, sorry, numeric comparison can be interfered with and socially engineered. So you could get a lazy user or someone who doesn't know that that's what they're supposed to be doing or someone who's just tired of having to say yes all the time. And so they just accept and therefore don't necessarily check that the six-digit code is the same. So with social engineering, technically speaking, it is not foolproof and or you know man in the middle proof uh, but it's pretty damn good so with all that flexibility um you've got to keep in mind that that's down to the hardware available on each of those devices in theory devices have to be in pairing mode before another device can connect to it uh, and that's you know part of the protection mechanisms really it means that that you can't connect to my smartwatch without my permission because you have to have physical access to my smartwatch to be able to press the right button combination and therefore get it into pairing mode and the idea is that that means that uh, the cryptographic material is always in place the keys don't get changed nobody gets to have access without your prior permission or at least physical access but in practice, whilst that should limit the attacker's ability to do uh, attacks against that process, uh, the pairing process, not all devices do that equally. It sometimes is done a bit badly. Um, and uh, there's examples of other devices that are not wearable tech that you know are definitely in that realm. I wouldn't be surprised to hear that there are some wearable tech that also does this. There are other parts of the Bluetooth spec as well, which uh, try to protect users. So um, the uh, there's something called Mac privacy, which is basically randomization. And if you randomize the Mac address of the Bluetooth radio in your devices, then that means you can't be tracked and you can't identify what the device is or that kind of thing without um, spending quite a lot of time on it. In theory, you can still do it because there's probably some limited level of randomization there. But in practice, that's quite a, a difficult thing to pull off. And it's certainly not something you can do on mass. Um, there's another part of this, though, which is um, you have to think about the fact that there's a name uh, that is broadcast about whatever the device is. So if you name it uh, Felix's iPhone or something, then it's pretty obviously it's going to be yours and it's probably going to be an iPhone. Um, so there's kind of some implications about that and whether or not those things should be broadcast before it's paired or whether it's not in pairing mode. So all of what I've just described is communications crypto and the kind of the protocol itself um, and that's all well and good and there's clearly you know opportunities for vulnerability there um, but hacking a device might actually be on the in quotes inside of the crypto so after you've paired to it uh, that means that it's uh, attacks that are affecting the the application layer um, and that means things like uh, buffer overflows or sending erroneous data or maybe second order effects like sending a payload via your smart device channel 
to the, uh, the 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 app on your phone, which then embeds whatever that payload is within a web app somewhere. So you could imagine it would be an interesting route to produce some cross-site scripting or some other web-based attack against that uh, that system via a Bluetooth channel. Now, some of these things are going to be uh, very difficult to pull off. Uh, some of them are going to be incredibly like device specific or ecosystem specific, but kind of interesting nonetheless. Uh, and certainly, if I could find one of those in a customer's device, then they would be really interested in that. Um, but it takes quite a lot of effort, and that applies to real attackers as much as researchers and pen testers. So I guess you might be asking why bother. Ultimately, you know, it's it's my smartwatch; it doesn't do anything, or you know, it's it's my cuddle band or something. Well. Yeah, you're probably right. Or some of those devices less exciting than others, but um, uh, that doesn't mean there is no you know viable attacks or things that might well be of interest. Aside from the obvious, I'm just a nuisance and I want to have some fun type uh, attackers. There is some that could well be uh, a bit more interesting than that. So, what about like physical effects? Well, smartwatches, for instance, can now pay for things. Um, so if you've got a, a smartwatch that can pay for things, then maybe actually you want to prevent people from paying for something on your behalf without your permission. Um, and then there's things like being a nuisance and changing the time or uh, playing some music when you don't want it or you know, using the, the GPS within your watch to be able to identify where you are. The second order attacks as well. So you could affect the admins of the system, which could then lead to targeting users of the devices at range. You know, if you wanted to know where the president was of the United States or something and he wears a, a, a smartwatch, then you could maybe find out where they are. Um, and that means you don't have to be in close proximity. And you can think about that definitely as a, a route to other users' devices as well. You might want to actually attack their laptop, but you can do it via their smart device, um, the wearable tech. And there's third-order attacks as well. So reverse engineering is what I mean here, which is getting a foothold on the device in order to be able to develop more significant exploits. You might actually just need that first bit of entry to be able to get through. And then there's also something that's kind of interesting. It's been happening over a bit of time. Um, there's been several instances where health data or smartwatch data has been used in prosecution for things like murder. Um, and that's often as key evidence for like activity levels when the suspicious activity was supposed to be happening or location or maybe the time of death of the victim. So you could imagine it would be possible to incriminate somebody by implanting false data or perhaps to erase or modify the data that's already within someone's account to avoid prosecution or to at least muddy the waters. And then obviously there's the privacy concerns, which you started talking about earlier. Essentially, can I track you around the country or uh, you know which shops you go to and that kind of thing as well? So what do I think? Well, the fact is that Bluetooth has come a long way um, with the particularly version 4.2 and the, the low energy uh, secure connect stuff. And it's now possible to do Bluetooth quite well from a cryptographic point of view. It's a shame, though, that some devices still do use weak options like the uh, just works version of, uh, of, of Bluetooth low energy connections. Um, if you pair something and it just works, this is a bad sign. So just keep that in mind when you're thinking about your own devices. As for like the inside of the crypto attacks, um, a lot of developers don't think about code safety here because inside Magic Crypto, it's safe, right? Or well, that's the idea. But that's just not true. And that's great for uh, certain types of attacker, particularly reverse engineers. 
as a consumer, it's very difficult to identify secure Bluetooth devices before you use them. For instance, you can't try pairing it before you've bought it. And usually the marketing says something like, oh, it's using the latest Bluetooth version or, or similar, which is somewhat misleading in my opinion. Thanks for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please give the show a rating or review in your podcast app. Tweet about it or post it somewhere. We'd really appreciate it. To talk to us about any aspect of the show, perhaps suggest a future topic or to ask a question about IoT security, please get in touch via email on helpme at yg.ht with at gotta underscore hack via Twitter or by searching you gotta hack that on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs>